This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. Just a few years ago, about four years ago, there was a funeral and a large, impressive church for a man that was very well known in the congregation and also in the community. This man was very well known, and at the start of the service, the man's brother came forward. He came forward and he spoke about his brother, and he spoke of all the contributions that his brother had made, not only to his own life, but to the life of everyone that he touched. Truly, this was a man who had had great impact. This is a man who, across the course of his years, he had served in Rotary, he had been a city councilman, he had been a volunteer coach at the high school, he was a noted philanthropist, he gave money away to all sorts of worthy causes, charities, and missions. In the local church, he had been an elder. He had served for a great many years in the local body, and even upon his departure, he had given an endowment for the construction of his sanctuary. With all that said, with a brother unpacking all these things that his brother had done, all these deeds and successes and achievements, everyone gathered there. They nodded their head. Truly, the world was going to be worse off for his departure. Truly, this man was going to be missed. And his brother even said this, and amens filled the room when he said it. He said, if ever there was a man who has earned his place into heaven, it was my brother. Again, amens filled the room. But then the speaker said something unexpected. But anyone could have ever earned his place into heaven on the basis of all the wonderful things that he did, although it would be my brother. He said, you should know that my brother did not believe that. My brother did not believe he had earned anything. He said, my brother never talked about the things that he had done. His focus was only on what Jesus had done. My brother looked upward to his Savior. He looked forward to his redemption. He looked towards the cross for victory. And not for a moment did he look backwards or trust in his own works, achievements, or successes. Now, in the quietness that followed, this man's brother read aloud Paul's words in Philippians 3 that are part of our text today. Specifically, he read this verse from Philippians 3.13. He said, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things that are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This morning... There's something about your past that you need to recall. See, as Christians, there's nothing about our past. There's nothing about all the works we've done. There's nothing in our trophy case, so to speak, that in of itself, in of itself, secures our place in heaven. There's no one thing you might do, no a thousand things, no works you might accomplish that by themselves, independent of anything else, will enable you to reach God's golden shores. Now, I trust that you've got that. If those of you who have been studying Galatians or Philippians, you've certainly heard that over the past number of weeks. There's nothing you can do, no work you can do to get into heaven or saved by grace through faith alone, uh, not of works, so that no man may boast. I trust that's not uh, news to you. With that said, the opposite is also true. Our works cannot get us into heaven at the same time. There's no sin or rap sheet that you might have that in of itself is capable of keeping you out. You see, your past, however good it is, cannot independently save you. But at the same time, your past, however bad it is, cannot prevent you from being saved if it is the will of your Savior. If it is the will of God to save you, there's nothing that you might have done in times past that is so bad, so terrible, that in of itself it discounts you from the reach of God's grace. 
There's nothing you can do that can independently heave you into heaven, and there's nothing you can do that can somehow prevent you from entering into heaven if it is God's will to save you. Now, the Apostle Paul knew these truths firsthand. The Apostle Paul's life was filled with all manner of wonderful deeds and all manner of terrible deeds. The Apostle Paul, on the one hand, had committed great evil. Remember when he was Saul of Tarsus? Remember when the Apostle Paul was Saul of Tarsus, the things that he did? You remember when he was saved, he's on the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, and as he's going to Damascus, what's he doing? Scripture said he's breathing out threats and murder. Threats and murder to who? To Christians who are living in Damascus. The rap sheet of Paul, so to speak, the crimes he committed were significant. At the same time, if you were to analyze Paul's life, he had done all manner of wonderful things too. He had planted churches. He had been an apostle. He proclaimed a risen Savior. He had done bad things. He had done good things. But he did not obsess, as we're going to see in today's text, he didn't obsess over any of it. Paul's focus was never on his history, but always on his future. Paul was not focused on his history, but on his future. And that's what we see in today's text, and it's a lesson that applies to us as well. Let's consider how it applies. We'll start at verse 12, then we'll work our way through the balance. Verse 12. Not that I've already attained, or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. All right, in last week's study... We looked at the first 11 verses of chapter 3. Now, if you remember the flow of Philippians, for the first two chapters of Philippians, Paul is very joyous. Paul is very thankful. Paul's excited over what's going on in Philippi. He's excited about their response to the gospel. He thanks them because they sent care for him while he was in prison. They sent Epaphroditus to bring him finances and supplies. So the first two chapters of Philippians, he's really excited and thankful and joyous. Then, at the start of chapter 3, he almost stops for a moment. He almost stops and he says, look, i got to remind you of some things. i got to remind you. It may seem tedious, but for you it is safe. In particular, he was telling them to beware of those who would come to Philippi and preach to them a different gospel than the one that he had preached. Now, in Paul's day, there was a group of men who were doing that consistently. These men were called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers, as you would guess, their background, their cultural context, it was Judaism. Now, they professed Jesus, and yet they had never seen Jesus aright because their emphasis was never on the new covenant that Jesus brought, but always on the old covenant of Moses. The Judaizers, when they came to a town, they would give lip service to Jesus, but they would consistently tell Gentiles in faraway places that they needed to become Jews first. Before they could ever become a Christian, before they could love Jesus, they had to love Moses. Before they could ever fall in love with the new covenant, they had to adopt the practices of the old. And so they would come to places like Galatia, and they would say, hey, irrespective of what you believe in your heart, you need to be circumcised. And not only should you be circumcised, while you're at it, you should keep the feast days. And you should do all these things that we've been doing for centuries in our tradition. So the Judaizers would go to places like Galatia or Philippi and teach a gospel that was work-centered. It would have words like faith and grace and Jesus in the midst. And yet, if you asked a Judaizer, what must I do to be saved, he would talk first and foremost about circumcision and the works of the law and the like. Well, Paul, as you know, this was a sticking point to him. The letter of Galatians, those of you who were part of our study this spring, you remember, the letter of Galatians, it's a hard letter to read because Paul's pretty irritated when he wrote it. When Paul wrote to the Galatians, he writes to them, he says, all right, and this is at the very start of the book. He says, you know, I was there, I sweated among you, I slept in the midst of your tents, I prayed with you, I worked side by side with you, and I taught you the gospel. And no sooner did I leave town, 
No sooner did I leave town, but you began to listen to follow a false gospel. He says, I'm astonished at how fast you did this. How fast you took a gospel. I preached you a gospel of grace and faith, a gospel that was simple and pure. And you took it and you put that on a shelf and you listened to the guys who came in and said, really, at the end of the day, it's about the works that you do. I'm astonished that you bought into that. A, because that's not a saving gospel. And B, because who wants that? Who desires to make your life more difficult? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Not through a hundred different things that if you only have 99 of them, maybe you're not in the kingdom. He says, I'm astonished that you would believe that. And if you remember in Galatians 1, when he wrote to them, he says, look, if I or another apostle or an angel from heaven should come down and teach you any other gospel than this, if he teach you any other gospel than the gospel that you were given, the simple, pure, saving gospel, ordinary means of grace, if anyone should teach you anything other than that, let such a one be anathema. Let him be accursed. Because they are doing you a terrible service. Now that's what he wrote to the Galatians. Well, his concern was that the Philippians would not be immune from that sort of false gospel as well. His concern was that the Judaizers would ultimately get to Philippi. And just like the Pied Piper, when they got to town playing their tune, the people would dance. They would yield to what the Judaizers were saying. And he doesn't want that at all. And so last week he was saying, look... Those of you who think you can be saved by anything you do and the works you accomplish, I want you to know something. If anyone could ever be saved by doing enough things, if anyone could ever be saved by checking all the boxes, he says, it would have been me. He says, don't forget who I was before Christ found me. I was an Israelite. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was zealous for God and his law. I even persecuted the church on behalf of God and his law. I did everything I could, checked every box I thought was appropriate. I did all of that. And now, as I look at that, and I look at all the boxes I checked, as I look at all the works I thought I could pull with me into heaven and lay before God and say, look at that. As I look at all that now, I see it for what it is. Rubbish. Trash. Excrement. Dung. As I said at the first service, Paul used a word in the Greek that honestly connotates something I can't even say in the confines of our church this morning. That's how he viewed his works. It's not that good deeds are unimportant to God. Of course they're important, but they don't save you. And if you start trusting in those things and think that you could stand before God and say, Look, God, I was nice to my neighbor. I tithed. I was in church. I did this or that or the other thing. If that is the basis by which you think you're going to be saved, Jesus, Paul, every angel in heaven would tell you you're wrong. They say you cannot bring a mountain of works in heaven and think that one of them or all of them is sufficient to save you. We're saved singularly through faith in the person and work of, of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he could not punch his ticket through his works. He knew the Galatians were messed up, but they thought they could. And his worry was that the Philippians would buy into the same thing. Salvation is not a debt that God owes you. It's grace he gives you. As we return to verses 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul at this point, he's continuing his theme of downplaying his own works. When he says, not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. 
As we said, there were people in Paul's day, there's people in our day, to think that you can independently achieve a level of works or righteousness or whatever that God is going to smile at. There was people in his day, and there's people in our day as well. In fact, it's the multitudes in the world around us who think that God loves them on the basis that they're so lovable. That look at all the nice things that they do. They're good people and the like. Well, Paul here, he knows that's just not the way that works. You can't rank up to a level of righteousness that God will automatically part the doors of heaven in order to allow you in, just on the basis of that righteousness. If you could do that, if you could work your way into God's good pleasure, if you could do a lot of cool stuff, neat stuff, great stuff, and give that to God and say, I'm paying for my salvation, you owe me because I did this, if that were a thing, whether it was in Pharisees or you and I, if that were a thing, what would the need for Jesus be? If you could do a million good deeds and only one wrong one, if the balance was like that, and you could get into heaven on the basis of that balance, what would the need for the atoning work of Jesus Christ be? If you could save yourself on the basis of your own righteousness, the basis of the things that you do, why would you need Christ? That was the fundamental flaw of Pharisees, Judaizers, a lot of people in our day and age as well. It doesn't work that way. Paul said, I don't trust in my works. He says, I used to. Man, I sure used to. I thought I could just stride into heaven on the basis of this garment of my works. I could just walk right in there and God would love me because, you know, I did all this stuff. But then he learned that all the stuff that he'd done with all the selfish motivations by which he did it, he learned that's equivalent of filthy rags. And you can't approach a holy God in his own kingdom near his throne wearing filthy rags. That's not the way this works at all. He knew, I hope you and I know, that the singular means by which you can approach him on that day, a holy God, is that you have to be clad in righteousness. Yes, but it's not yours. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On the cross, our sin was imputed to him, but his righteousness was also imputed to us. So when you stand before him, whether it's today or on that day to come, it's not on the basis of that mountain of things or the filthy rags that you're going to be saved. It's on the basis that you have faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. And when God sees you, he sees you clad in the white robe of righteousness that belongs to his son. That is the basis of salvation. It's what he's trying to express not only here, but in virtually every page of every epistle. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, you and I have the tendency to spend so much of our days looking over our shoulder, looking backwards, looking at the past. For many of us, it's because when we look at the old days, the good old days, we think that those days were better, and sometimes we look back and we say, that's when I was at my peak, or that's when life was greater, that's when I was healthy. We oftentimes look back and elevate some experience or year or decade and say, that was the time, that was the time. Now, for others of us, whenever we look at our own past or the world's past, we're just embarrassed by it all because maybe we made bad decisions in years past and we hate to reflect on it. Whatever the case, whether you've lived through glory days or whether your past contains absolute nightmares, here's the thing. Either one can distract you from what you need to be doing now. Paul was not content to sit there under house arrest in Rome, whittling on the front porch and spinning yarns about the good old days. What does he say here? He says, no, I don't look backward. I don't focus on all that. He said, yes, there's a lot I could reminisce about, but I don't do it. 
I look forward. My eyes are on the prize. I don't count myself to apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget those things that are behind. I reach forward to those things which are ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Every verb, every noun, every adjective here points ahead, not back. Now, if ever there was someone who could have sat back on his laurels, it was Paul. What a life he'd lived, both the good and the bad. He had stories to tell. If you wanted to sit there and listen to someone just tell you stories, Paul could have done that all day long. He could have reminisced about all the things he'd done right, all the things he'd done wrong as well. And as he did so, he could have slipped into this spiritual retirement mindset. I wonder, have you ever, especially those of us who have a little bit of gray, have you ever slipped into spiritual retirement mode? Perhaps this phase of your life where you say, well, I'm closer to the end than the start. And well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit back and, and I'll, I'll remember the good days and I'll, I'll tell the stories and you're constantly looking backwards. It doesn't matter how much time you have left. Paul, when he was in house arrest in Rome, he was either 95% or 99%, depending on which year he ultimately perished. He was either 95% or 99% through his walk, through his journey. He was at the end. He was at the end. And furthermore, he was confined. It's equivalent of being homebound in our own day. He couldn't go anywhere. He was homebound. He was older. His body was afflicted. He had thorn in the flesh. Getting up in the morning couldn't have been easy for Paul. He had lashes across his back. This was an older man near the end of his days, awaiting trial before Nero, without hardly any time left. In fact, he'd never leave Rome again. But did he go into spiritual retirement and just park himself on the bench out front of his tent and whittle his days away, remembering the glory days. No. Paul says, even now, even in this season, I'm committed to running the good race. I'm committed to fighting the good fight. I'm committed to the calling that's been given me as long as I have breath to which to pursue it. The upward call was always before him. It didn't matter how old he got. It didn't matter how confined he got. It didn't matter how much time he did or didn't have left. He said, this is my calling, and I will pursue it. And he did pursue it. Paul, how many letters do we have? He wrote from prison, house arrest. Well, we have several, and we don't have all the letters, certainly, that he ever wrote. He wrote letters. He prayed for folks. He welcomed visitors. He preached them the gospel. We see in Philippians that he preached even to the centurions. Those in the palace guard began to learn Jesus through his ministry. He took his time, the breath that was in his lungs, and he put it to good use. He says, I'm not done yet. Don't you ever believe that? No matter how old you get, no matter how the years can take away your mobility and your health, do not think for a moment, as long as you have breath in your lungs, that God is done with you. Do not for a moment enter into spiritual retirement. Paul is a model of a guy who with whatever time left, he was going to use it. And he did. How many missionaries do we have that would benefit from a letter from our congregants? How many people in our congregation would benefit from a call? Someone reaching out, even from the confines of home. How many ways can we serve the body of Christ? How many ways can we praise God? How many prayers can we pray even from our bed when we have no other ability to move? How many sins can we still sanctify? As long as you have breath, you still got sins. Put them to death using the time you've been given. All of this is part of the upward call. In verse 14, Paul says, I press towards, even at the end of my life, 95%, 99% done, even with all that behind me, I'm not thinking about that, I'm looking ahead. I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now one takeaway from that verse, we've already said for several minutes here, is that however confined Paul was, however limited his options were, 
no matter how soon death might approach, he was going to use his time well. That's one observation we have here, that as long as you have breath, you can read your Bible, you can pray, you can send letters, you can put sin to death, all of that. However, a second takeaway here is Paul's mention of the upward call. This is not an accidental phraseology. He could have said call, and you know, we would have understood it, but he says upward call. You know, as Christians, if I say that we're running a race, we sort of get that. Paul uses that language a lot. But we tend to see the race that we're running, or we tend to see everything that we do just through a horizontal lens. We tend to see life on the basis of the things that we can perceive in the world around us. We measure ourselves against other people. We measure our success against their success. We strive on the basis of what our contemporaries are doing or aren't doing and the like. We tend to view everything somewhat horizontal. With that said, the call of God is exclusively, intentionally, deliberately, vertical. The call we've been given is a vertical call. Our pursuits are heavenly. We are not of this world, is words that Jesus would say and that Paul would say elsewhere in his epistles. But we don't usually act that way. How often do we focus only on what we can see, only on the horizontal? Most of this week, we're going to be tempted to think almost exclusively about things that in the eternity of eternity comes don't matter. Most of the things we prioritize, most of the shiny things we pursue won't matter on the other side of eternity. Most of our efforts are on the mundane. Now, some of that's understandable. We need to work, we need to eat, we need to do these things, and that's true. And yet, we can become so consumed by the horizontal, and the only time we think vertically is for an hour on Sunday morning, and that's not the approach that Paul had. Paul was kingdom-driven. It got to the point where, honestly, Paul says, it doesn't matter anymore whether I abound, whether I'm poor, it doesn't matter, whether I'm shipwrecked or beaten, whether things are going great or things are not. I've learned to be content because, honestly, none of this stuff around me, the horizontal, it ain't going to last. I know where I'm going, and I know that when I get there, I'll be there for eternity, and I know who's waiting for me on that side. So everything I'm going to do now is based on that future and that home. It's an upward call we're prompted to think vertically, even if that's hard for us to do. This morning, I can assure you, I can assure you that one of the things God is attempting to do in your life, one of the things He will do in your life, whether you like it or not sometimes, is He is looking to cup your chin with His hand and focus your eyes and your gaze skyward. One of the things God is intent on doing is cupping our chin, causing our focus and our attention to look to him and look to the kingdom that is to come. And for many of us, when he does so, that can be hard because some of us are resistant. Some of us, that's not where we want to focus. I mean, look at all the shiny things around us. But if God loves you as a child, he'd keep doing it. He'll keep retraining your focus. He'll say, don't keep building the house of straw. Build it out of things that'll last. And in order to build it out of things that'll last, you have to be heavenly Mind. This is enfolded and wrapped in this concept of an upward call by which our focus is on that kingdom. Let's look at our final verses now, verses 15 and 16. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Let me stop there for a moment. There is maturity that comes in the faith. Not all of us are on equal levels of maturity. There are those in the kingdom that come. There was those who were prophets and apostles, so maturity outstrips us all. All of us are not the same level of maturity, and yet we see in verse 15 that even if we think contrary to the things of God, he will reveal to us the truth. He will impress it upon our hearts, and he'll keep cupping our chin until we see it and recognize it. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this in mind. And if anything you think otherwise, if anything in these letters, this book, 
you say, I'm not too sure about or I disagree with, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Let's look to wrap up by focusing on this issue of maturity. When Paul wrote to the Philippians, he knew who the Philippians were. What I mean by that is he could literally picture them. He knew Tom and Bob and Rita and Fran and Joe, whatever else they had in Philippi. He knew them. He knew the Philippians by name. He could picture them, and he knew that some of them were well along in matters of faith, and others of them, maybe not so much. He knew that. But he knew that whether they were young or old in the faith, they were all called to continue to grow and get wiser and more grounded in the truth, become more and more mature. Now, in my time in ministry, you know, when you're trying to assess someone's spiritual maturity, there's a lot of tools you can use. The most obvious one is, well, what do they know? What's their knowledge base? If someone has an intellectual or academic pedigree and they're theologically rounded, you know, that seems to be a sign of maturity. At least I used to think so. Now I think, yes, it's important and good and right, but having an intellectual or academic grasp of theological truth does not necessarily mean you're the most mature person in the world. What I've learned is that there are two signs that to me speak more loudly than anything else. The first is this. When someone who professes Jesus is also gracious in the way they interact with Jesus' sons and daughters, when they not only profess Jesus and know his word, but they're also just very gracious to those they engage with, even those that they disagree with, that's a sign of some maturity. When I was in seminary, I was with a bunch of young guys, and we all studied theology. And you can be pretty bombastic with your theology at times. Well, it's good to stand on truth, but there's no call in Scripture to be a jerk about it. We're called to grace, and I mean that very, very sincerely. We're called, we're called to grace. And when I interact with someone who professes Jesus, and I can see the grace with which they treat others, even those who are outside the kingdom or are outside looking in, or even those brothers and sisters they might disagree with on things, when I see grace, I see that as a sign of maturity. A second sign of maturity is this. When Christians or those who profess Christ begin to take those things they used to hold so tight in their hands in the world around them, when they take the things and the priorities they used to have that they held so tightly, and they begin to let it go, like so many grains of sand, and realize they can't keep all this. When they realize, I wasn't even made for this place. When people begin to realize, when Christians begin to realize they weren't made for this place, but their home is on high, and when they begin to act accordingly, that, that is a sign of great maturity. It's a sign that someone's got it. Their focus is on the right place. When they begin to act and prioritize those things that are heavenly, and they begin to just let go of the things of this earth. Now, lest it simply be me who says it, or even Paul who says it, listen to what Jesus himself says about that very issue in 1 John 2. Jesus said, don't love. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and us. The world, it's passing away. You see that with every leaf that falls from a tree. You see that with every hair that falls from a head. You see that the world is passing away. And so is the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Jesus, the apostle Paul, the prophets, the apostles, they knew that this is not their home. Mature Christians in our day not only know that, 
If I asked, is this world our home? Are we made for that kingdom? I trust every hand would go up. But it's not just what you intellectually know and give your intellectual assent to. It's the choices you'll make this week that reflect it. Mature Christians make those choices. And in God's time, those of us, and we're all growing, but those of us who are less mature, God will shatter your idols. He will take the things you're grasping, and in many cases, he'll take those things and he'll break them across his knee. Because that's what a loving father does when he sees a child going astray or grasped into that which will not last. If God loves you, he'll do that. It won't always be the easiest thing. But it is done out of a heart of love. The Apostle Paul had experienced that. He experienced the gain of things and the loss of things. And ultimately, he said in verse 13, he says, I'm done looking at what I have, looking at my past, looking at the things under the sun, looking horizontal. He says, I'm now, I'm reaching forward. I'm reaching forward to those things which are ahead. This morning, can you say the same thing? If your spouse, children, friends, neighbors, co-workers were to inspect your spiritual lives, would they see a man or woman of the world focus on the world's things and the shiny things outside these doors or someone who is not of this world? Someone who had their citizenship in heaven. It's not just what you believe. I mean, what you believe is important, but how are those beliefs manifesting themselves in a way that it's testifying to other people? What is the case in your own life? The mature Christians will ultimately pursue God, His Word, His church, all these things with increasing and greater, greater fervor. Those others who may be less mature in the faith are distracted. They're not so much running the race, to use Paul's analogy in 2 Timothy. Those who are distracted, they're not so much running a race. They might think they are. They might even see the track from where they're at, but they're not really running the race. They're at the concession stand. This morning, as you think of your own Christian walk, are you on the track? Are you running forward? Are you making progress? Are you going to the finish line for the prize of the upward call? Is that on your radar? Or... Are you at the concession stand, feeding on the things of this world? We need to be introspective. We need to act accordingly. Let's pray to the God of heaven now. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.